Our message today is entitled Good. And it has to do with these verses here in James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, where the Lord says to us, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. I'd like to begin today with a personal testimony. Some years ago, over a period of about two years, I had, as a father, one of the most precious opportunities that a dad could ever enjoy with his son. I had time with him, time, and lots of it. I am retired, as you know, and being retired, I have a very flexible schedule. So I'm free to spend time. And my son, being a school teacher, was at home most often in the evenings. But for him, there was also a very special set of events that had taken place in the then recent months of his life that also provided some free time for our chats. He had in those previous months experienced a very heart-rending incident of divorce from his wife of five years. And with that as the setting, he and I began a habit that some people, perhaps most people, would call a very bad habit. But for the two of us, it was really good, very good. We began to meet on our back patios most evenings for about an hour and a half, and we would smoke a cigar together. When I say we met on our back patios, I don't mean that we met together. He actually lived about 100 miles away. So each evening, I would sit down on my back patio, and he would sit down on his patio, and we would talk on the phone as we smoked our cigars. Now, why smoke a cigar, especially with all of the purported health risks? Well, I'm not altogether sure why we chose to do that. But I do know that it helped make for a very special experience in both of our lives. The cigars seemed to serve as a special medium of connection between us that bound us together as we smoked and talked. There's a special bond of camaraderie that's developed in moments like those. It takes about an hour and a half to smoke a cigar. And that provides about an hour and a half of focused relational time, precious time, uninterrupted, in a sense, face-to-face -face time, time and conversation. For some of those beginning months of our back patio chats, the topic was often about how my son should respond to the sudden loss of his marriage. During the closing days of their marriage, his wife had revealed to the marriage counselor that she was not a Christian and she wanted nothing to do with Christianity. But my son was a Christian and it was his earnest desire to have a godly response to his dilemma and especially to know the truths that God teaches in the scriptures about marriage and about divorce. And yes, we also did do lots of self-examinations during that time. What went wrong? Who was at fault? But thankfully, 
those examinations were not for the purpose of placing blame, but rather more to help make sure that such things would not happen again. We talked a lot about how a husband was to love his wife using such scripture verses as Ephesians 5. Let me read these for you. They're from Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. And these are words that command us, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We also used another verse from 1 Peter 3, verse 7. There, the Lord says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heir with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Precious words. And it was in some of those moments within those long conversations that my son and I began to address the question about the goodness of God. The goodness of God. And about what His goodness can look like and all the many circumstances of our lives. Through faith, we know that God is absolutely sovereign, both in all things and over all things. And through faith, we also know that God is providential, that in all the matters of our existence, meaning that He intentionally inserts Himself into everything that takes place. His hand is active at work in everything that takes place. He is personally and intimately involved in every occurrence taking place on the earth. And again, especially every occurrence that takes place in our own personal lives. And that God is always good in every involvement that He has with us. And we're told in today's text that His gifts, all those things that He provides for us, both materially and spiritually and emotionally, they are good and they are perfect. And these scriptures are utterly filled with the evidence of God's goodness. In Psalm 119, 68, some of my favorite words, the psalmist there concerning God says to him, you are good and you do good. All of these scriptures that we have within these this Bible, they affirm and they reaffirm over and over again to us that everything that God does, the very essence of His character is goodness, and that He is ever and always good. And as these verses of our text tell us, He never varies or changes. He's always good. So His goodness is not going to be in one manner one day and in another manner the other day. It is always good. It may come to us in different ways, but it is always good. And one of the most favored verses of Christians everywhere that gives real needed comfort and reassurance to uh, most people, every day, most Christians especially, is Romans 8.28. Even unbelievers will quote this verse. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Now as we would read that verse, and as we might quote it to other people, we need to especially be careful not to pass quickly over some of the words of that verse. I want to remind us 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. God says in these words that he causes everything to take place. He's sovereign and he is providential, meaning that it is this most powerful hand in all of existence that is at work as he causes all these things to work together for our good. Now, I mentioned this on other occasions, but we have to understand that this verse does not imply that God simply comes in during the worst of our crisis or at the end of our crisis and then gives us a hand with our problem. That's not at all what this verse means. This verse speaks instead of an ongoing and continuing work of God's hand, meaning that he was intimately involved long before that crisis ever came into being and that he is intimately involved in every minute detail of every part of all of it that's taking place. In other words, God is not just the cleanup crew coming in to fix something that we've made a mess out of. No, he was intimately involved through every step beginning with the first step. And again, it's through faith that we know that in every intimate involvement of our circumstance, he's always good. We might have to remind ourselves of that often, but it's true. Unfortunately, for your and my meager ability to comprehend the whole picture of a matter taking place, God's goodness does not always look and feel good. And as my son and I concluded through many discussions and still do continue to discuss, God's more omniscient meaning of the word good is so often not, not the definition that you and I give to it. Our definition of good is something that feels good to us or it seems to fit that situation that is taking place. But that's not God's definition of good. As we well know, and on any given day, in any given circumstance, good can really have very different faces. To see some of those faces of good, we have only to read through the book of Job. And if you've not ever studied through the book of Job, I would truly invite you to do that. Because there you'll observe this travail of Job's soul as God's goodness rained down pain and suffering upon him, beginning with the loss of his seven sons and three daughters and all of their children. Then to add to that, Job also lost all of his wealth and then his health. And then came attacks and criticisms from his friends and then even his dear wife. With all that was taking place, the goodness of God was veiled beyond all recognition, especially to Job. Unfortunately for you and me, such as is often the case for us, you and I have read those words in the book of Job, but we still have difficulty with receiving the suffering that God brings to us. See, there in the book of Job, you and I can read the book of Job and the first two chapters tell us all about how God had this conversation with Satan and he invited Satan then to consider his servant Job and that they were working behind the scenes and that Satan was so involved in all of the sufferings of Job. We know all about that. Job didn't have that advantage, so he suffered in ignorance. Thankfully, though, by the way, God did explain it to Job in the very last chapters of the book of Job. And Job understood, and he was rewarded for his faithfulness. But all during his suffering, he did not see God's hand, and he kept crying out to be able to see it. Why did God give us the book of Job? He gave us the book of Job 
to help us to stop and, and recognize God's hand in our suffering. But then again, even with us knowing from these scriptures all about the necessity for us to recognize God's hand, we're still not able to fathom how God's goodness can look the way that it does and can cause so much pain and suffering in our bodies and souls and yet still be good. And the result in the matter that God addresses here in verse 6 of this chapter, he warns us, he says to us in James chapter 1, he says, when you ask in faith, now let me go back, you're in a time of suffering and you're talking to the Lord about your suffering. And he says here, ask in faith with no doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He's saying during your suffering as you pray, you have to pray without doubting because when you do doubt, it's like you're like a wave of a sea driven and tossed by the wind. Now when suffering and trials come, especially with the magnitude that it can come, it seems that each of us have a tendency to fail at this very thing that God warns us about. We begin to doubt and we do doubt. But thankfully, thankfully, even doubt can be used by God. It's a useful instrument. Even though it's wrong, we, he, he warns us not to doubt. It is a useful instrument in God's hand because doubt, as wrong as it can be, is also useful to drive us to faith because it seems that without the involvement of doubt, faith does not have reason to rise up or to grow. By that I mean if we are sure and confident about a matter, we don't need to hope. And remember, the very definition of faith is faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And so in our times of suffering and we're praying, we're saying, God, help me with this difficulty that I'm having. Some folks pray for healing and there's nothing wrong with praying for healing. But there's also a probability in many cases that we will not be healed or our loved one would not be healed. And that's when the doubt comes in because that doesn't take place. And that's when God reminds us of verses like Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. But God then will use our suffering to lift us by faith out of the suffering that we're in. It's one of the ways that he works all things together for good. He can see our doubts and then cause faith to rise up within us to overcome that doubt. He's truly amazing in that. And a realization that you and I must grab hold of has to do with the whole scope of all that God is doing on the earth every day. Folks, God's plan is so much bigger than just you and me. We do get caught up in our own suffering or we get caught up in the suffering of our children, our grandchildren, other loved ones. But God's plan is far bigger than just you and me. He has a whole big world to manage and to bless. And as important as we might think ourselves to be, we really are only a small part of his overall plan. He's working in every person's life, every moment, all over the earth at the same time. And that which is taking place with you also probably involves someone else. Think through this, please. What's taking place in your life or in your child's life probably also involves someone else. Again, often maybe even several people. 
And that which is good for you or for your loved one or what you have determined to be good for you or for your loved one, it may not be so good for those other people. And often one person will need to suffer for the benefit of another. Think about that for a moment. Often God will call one person to suffer for the benefit of another. And yes, that is when most everyone cries foul. And they complain about why they have to suffer so that someone else might gain. You see that taking place right now in all that's going on in our nation. No one wants to suffer for the benefit of someone else. And so people cry out and whine and complain. But listen, you and I need to remind ourselves that is exactly what happened with the Lord Jesus. And this is when real reality checks in with us. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't whine and protest about having to suffer for you? And such suffering can be as simple and inconsequential as just daily occurrences within our lives. I recall when I was a baseball coach for the little guys, I was always unhappy about the rain because it would keep us from practice or from a game. But for other people, or even when I got home, I really wanted it to rain because of my grass needing it. But most often our suffering is not so inconsequential. Suffering often is very serious, especially in such matters, really, that we encounter with life and death. It's on those occasions that this definition of good is really brought into question. I pondered that uh, recently because, uh, as some of you know, I am coming near to 75 years old. And so I know that uh, things uh, and suffering does lie ahead. Psalm 90, God decreed that the length of our days is 70 years or 80. If we have the strength, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Again, I'm in my extended years. Some of you might be even in those overtime years yourself. And the question is, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing that God has put limits on your and my years on this earth? I've often thought about the foreordained seasons of the natural world, spring and summer, fall and winter. Is it good that natural seasons only last about 90 days? Wouldn't it be good if it were always spring or some might want always summer? God in his great wisdom and foresight has not just looked down the future of this world and decided that people and all the natural things should have a certain end. No, God actually created it to be so. Now God did create us, being Adam and Eve, in a condition that could have lasted an eternity but God also knew that was not going to take place. From the beginning, even from the foundations of the earth, He knew that there would be need to be a time for an end. Because there's only one eternal being, and that's God Himself. No beginning and no end. But all of the rest of the created nature, and especially mankind, we really do have a calculated season of life. And then there will be an end. As I prepared these words, I was sitting in my sunroom looking out at the wonders of the, this season of spring. The trees in my yard, they were sprouting new leaves daily and they were soon going to sprout fruit and plums and figs and flowers and all those things that my trees would and bushes would provide. 
And the thought came to me that if the season was always spring, the trees and plants would always be growing new life, leaves and fruits and stuff. But without summer, without summer, there will never be a time of maturity for those fruits and no harvest. And so it is with you and me. We have a beginning in this life and we have a natural aging process which will end with our death. Some younger than the 80 years, a few older, but each of us, we each have our season and it's a defined season and our season must end as God declared here in this psalm. We also have other psalms that speak of similar endings. In Psalm 139, God tells us that our days are numbered. You and I will not live one day longer than we're supposed to or one day less. God declares that to us in Scripture. We don't understand it, but it's true. But again, the question is, is our limited number of years on this earth a good thing or a bad thing? Is God good or is He unfair or bad for having decreed limits on your and my lifetime? Think about that. I have a dear friend, this lady. Her husband was a good friend of mine and he died some few years ago. She has not stopped being angry with God for taking her husband. To her, the season of life for her husband was a bad thing. And she has not forgiven God for that as of the last time we talked about it. So the question that God is asking us in here is do we believe that He is good and that He does good and that everything that He does, no matter how painful or how much suffering is attached with it, is He good? Do you believe it? As to the end of days, I must tell you folks that I personally, I'm tired. I'm tired. And I'm getting more tired every day. Now, I may continue for a few more years, but at some point, I, I will need a rest. Thankfully, Jesus has gone on ahead to prepare a place for me, and there I'll rest. And I do so much look forward to those accommodations that we read about in Scripture that He's prepared for me and for my loved ones. And all of that is so very good of Him to do that. Now, as to the many back patio deliberations that my son and I have had about the goodness of God, the events for his life that have taken place since those days have proven that God truly is good. He truly is good, so very, very good. God has been gracious to my son, and he has brought him a delightful new bride, one who loves the Lord Jesus and wants to live out her Christian days with my son, and also with their soon-to-arrive little baby girl. Praise the Lord. God truly is good, and he proves out to be good in every circumstance. Good and perfect, as these words tell us. Now, as for all of us here today, you and I, will we truly enjoy all the many forms of God's goodness all of the time? And the answer to that is most likely not. Most likely not. We'll not enjoy it because the suffering that we'll endure will never be enjoyable to us. But by faith, we really can rest in the assurance that everything that God brings to us truly is good. And we can praise His name for that. And He tells us again here in verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so I would ask of you, do you trust in the Lord with all your heart? 
or do you lean to your own understanding? God invites us to trust him. We might not understand it. We most likely will not understand it. But he is calling us to trust in him during some of the days of suffering that we have lying in front of us. Let's pray.